want to greet you in the name of Jesus for the new year we're embracing and to get excited because it just feels like it's going to be a great year of faith and victory. And as we hold on to God and look to God and obey, trust and obey and learn what we need to learn, he's going to do great things in our lives and in other lives to reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we're here for to spread the gospel. And the other day, I was thinking about this new year, and sometimes God gives me a word for the new year, so I was thinking 2016. And I haven't studied this out yet, but I got 2016 glean and gleaned for the new year, like gleaning the wheat, gleaning. I'm not sure what all it means yet. I have to study it out. I apologize. I haven't studied it out yet. But then the next word he gave me uh, yesterday, I think, was lean. Lean on him for everything because he is a loving father. And just as we love our children and had a wonderful Christmas with all of our children, if they want something or we can do anything for them, we're just so thrilled, and it gives us joy in our heart to be able to be part of their lives and take care of them, and they're precious to us. And he feels that way, too, and we don't receive really all the love he has for us and how much he wants us to depend upon him. And he is dependable. He is faithful. We may not be, but he is. So we have to learn, and it's because it's a habit to lean to ourselves and our own understanding at times. But we've got to look to him and not lean to our own understanding or to be wise in our own eyes, but just see what God is doing. Because this is a new year, and he said, forget the former things. Don't look, forgetting the past, reaching forward, pressing toward the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. So we need to stir ourselves up. Don't sit down and think it's winter or oh. <laughs> but stir yourselves up. When we come to the house of God, we can get excited and expect and look for what God wants to do in us and to further the kingdom. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. She just summed up the next four weeks preaching. <laughs> Praise God. Praise God. Thank you. Father, we come to you this morning and thank you that you are a God of all comfort. Whatever may be going on in our lives, whatever happens, Lord, that may tend to shake us or may discourage us or may be overwhelming to us, we thank you that you have everything well in hand, that there's nothing that happens in the world, there's nothing that happens in our lives that you don't already know about, and your word is provides a promise that you will bring us safely through it, that there's no temptation that occurs in our lives that's not common to man, with which you not <coughs> will be not with us and be able to give us, and give us the way to go through it and the way to come escape it. We thank you, Father, that you're watching over every one of our lives this morning. And Father, we thank you that you're watching over this body of believers together. And as we come into this new year, Father, and we've been looking over this last year at our purpose and why we're here, we ask you, Father, this is a time to stop studying and to begin to act. And so we thank you for the power of your spirit, O oh God, as we begin to do the things that you've called us to do. And we look now to the word of God and thank you that as we open this word, Father, you are laying a foundation for what you want to do here and in our lives and in this place this year. And for that, we give you thanks. We look to the Holy Spirit today and trust him to bring out of my heart and out of this word exactly what you want to say to each one of us because there's something you want to say and do in each one of our lives this morning. And we trust you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. While Pastor Kurt was sharing with you, something kind of went off in me 
Uh, it's, it's kind of the preliminary to the message. Open your Bibles with you in Matthew chapter 7, by the way. And um, we can sit and study and learn and come in church and get all excited and stirred up and motivated, but until we begin to do something, nothing happens. <clears throat> James chapter 2 says, faith without works, faith without some corresponding action is dead. One of the translations says is useless. And so the things that you've been building on and feeding on and, and meditating on, the things we've been learning, unless we go do something, it's just going to begin to die in us. In fact, when God speaks to you, you need to be obedient to it right away because the longer you wait, the more the grace and ability to do it begins to fade. So it's a combination of learning and growing and then acting and doing. So we're going to have some things this year that are already beginning to take form, formulate that we'll begin to announce to you to begin to do some of the things we talked about last year, to share the gospel in the different ways. But you don't have to wait for those programs. God has opportunities for you every day. If we were just sensitive, there are opportunities around us every day. Sometimes they're big things. Sometimes it's an opportunity to lead someone to the Lord. Sometimes it's just an opportunity to be a blessing to somebody. My wife and I were having breakfast yesterday morning in a restaurant that has glass all along one side. And there was a, it was, it's wonderful to sit in there sometimes because you'll see, like, in this case, it was, a, it was a, probably a middle-aged man bringing his father, who was somewhat elderly, uh, to, to out for breakfast, obviously, on Saturday morning. And the father had a walker and was kind of shaky. And as he went by the window, I'm sitting there as he's going by, and he's, almost everybody that morning kind of had a sour look on their face. Just, you know, it's winter and it's, you know, the sun's not out. And, and as he went by, I just kind of looked at him and gave him this big smile. And he looked at me like this. So as he came around past her table... Anita smiled at him. He went by and he said, do I know you? You could tell he's like, he thinks, I must know you and I'm sorry, I forget who you are. And I said, no, it's not, we don't know each other. We just want to bless you today and say God loves you. And she said, oh, well, thank you. And right on, die. That may not seem like a big thing, but you don't know how God might use that. All we need to do is be obe sensitive and obedient and God will do the work and God will do the work. All right, that's sermon number one. <laughs> we began to talk about last year really what, we, it's a good thing to look at at the beginning of the year. We, excuse me, we get to talk about last week what is really a, a, a good thing to look at. We've been going through most of last year talking about why are we here? Why is this church here? Why are we here individually? Why are we here together as a church? And we've seen it's really simple. It's to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And we're going to get back to that and talk a little more about that. But really felt impressed at the beginning of this year to just look, talk about priorities and so we're in a very series, which I don't believe will go that long, called First Things First. And, and God is a God of order. We looked at that last week. God, and we're going to begin to look at that order this week. God is a God of order. And, and, and God wants to bless us, provide for us, take care of us. He wants to flow His authority through us. Jesus was a perfect example of that. Jesus didn't just come to show what the Father was like as an example so we can stand in awe of Him. He said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works that you do because I go to the Father. And yet we don't see many of those greater works. And I think that's because in many ways our lives and our priorities are not the same priority that He had. And if we begin to get them in order, then God's able to bless us, bless have His blessings flow in us and through us, and as that happens, then we become blessed and learn to live a life that is blessed because God wants us to be blessed. And so we need to go back and examine, and we need to do this periodically, just check ourselves. I find in my life when I'm getting frustrated or tired, I mean, tiredness is not, is not abnormal, but I want to get worn out, when I get frustrated, when I get touchy, almost always something's out of order in my life. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean outwardly, it may just mean internal priorities. And so when things aren't going right internally in you, it's a time to step back and check, God, show me the priorities. And one of the best ways to do that is in this Word, because one of the purposes of this Word is to correct us. Ephesians 5 says we're, we're cleansed by the washing of water of the Word. This Word is intended to be God's primary way of correcting us. God will use other methods but he wants to use primarily this word. Read this word, it convicts you, and then you need to do something about that conviction. So that's what we've been looking at. So we're going to look at, we looked at last week, this, God's a God of order. God set the universe in the sky, in, in, in existence. It is very precise. It is very orderly. God set your body is orderly. That's why doctors know where to find your heart and where to find your veins and where to find your brain. In case you lost it, they know where to look for it. Uh, uh, because we're all built the same way. There's an order to our body. And because and, and, God is a God of order. 
And we need to learn what that order is in our lives because God has an has a, has a order for our lives, an order of priority. And next time we'll talk about priorities a little bit. But I want to go back to what the foundation is. So this is why we're going to open here to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus is finishing up here what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And really what it is, is it was a lesson to his disciples, because if you go back before Matthew 5, which is when this begins, Jesus has been speaking to a huge multitude, and then he heals them, and then he withdraws up on the mountain, and his disciples follow him, and are asking him questions about what he meant, and Jesus begins to teach them certain principles of the kingdom of heaven. This sermon from Matthew 5 through Matthew 7 really is, is, is the, is the const- constitution of the kingdom of God. It lays out what the kingdom of God is all about and the standard by which we're to live. And so he ends up having, with all, having said all of these things with this conclusion. We're not going to go through the sermon. We're going to look at this conclusion that Jesus shares here in Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, and it did not fall, because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was it fall." And so it was that when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. Simple little parable that is so powerful. Same building design. Same materials. Same storm. Different results. Notice in this, each of these men build a house that represents what you're building of your life. Because from the time that you're born and then grow up and then you're released out into life, into your own life, you begin to build a life. Your life right now is the sum total of what you've chosen to build into it. Yes, there are circumstances that happened to you that were beyond your control, but you chose how you would react or respond to that. You chose whether you were going to feel sorry for yourself and use that as an excuse for not maturing, or you chose it as an opportunity to grow and mature. One of the, one of the challenging, most challenging stories I ever heard about that was from a friend of mine that was in ministry, who, and I've forgotten what the connection was, but he had met a young girl who was a child during the Vietnam War, and she saw her parents slaughtered in front of her ran, I think, into the, wo- into, the, into, the wo- into the jungle, was rescued by some GIs, was brought back over here, put in an orphanage, forgotten. And she grew up getting saved. She grew up getting filled with the Holy Spirit. She grew up going to high school, going to college, going to medical school, and being a doctor in some, speci- some, some uh, uh, specialty. With all that terrible start, she chose to not let that hold her back. Yet many times we have things happening to us that are nowhere near as traumatic as that, and we use those as excuses for not growing. So the, res- the life you have right now is, is the result of what you've chosen to either build into it or exclude out of it. And so that's what in this story the house represents what you've done with the life that God's entrusted to you. Second thing to notice is a storm came against both of these houses. Just because you're a Christian, just because you're in the family of God, just because you're filled with the Spirit, just because you're in ministry, just because you're serving God with all your heart, just because you're obedient, doesn't mean storms won't happen. You believe the Word of God's true? Well, the, the psalm says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. So don't get shocked when some affliction happens. I heard a preacher say long ago, there's, there's several reasons why by problems come into your life. One is because you're out of God's will, and another because you're in God's will. <laughs> so you cannot tell because you're in a storm what it means until God begins you to give you meaning to that. So storms came, by the way, the rest of that verse is, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. I don't want to forget that part. So the, 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 this rep, the, the houses represent their lives, and the storm comes to destroy the house. And in one case, the house stands, and in the other case, the house 
falls. So what's the difference between the house that stands and the house that falls? The foundation on which it's built. The rock, the foundation on which it's built. So the foundation of your life that you're building your life on will determine what's going to happen to you when you go through trials, it's going to determine how well you're going to make it through the end, whether you're going to be able to accomplish God's will. And so we're going to talk this morning about the, the, the right foundation. What is a foundation? Well, I looked it up just for a definition, and what I got was this. It's that on which a building is built. Isn't that profound? The first layer of a structure, now listen to this, that provides a stable base for the rest of the structure. And in this definition it said bedrock or the ground or the rock of the ground is the preferred foundation. It determines the strength, the size, and the quality of what can be safely built on it. I've, I've shared with you before, and I don't believe this was just a, a, a coincidence, that in at least three of the law firms that I worked in, the office that I was assigned to was either directly across the street or just down the street a little bit from some superstructure that was being built. The uh, first one was in downtown Boston when they were building uh, uh, 100 Federal Street, a building that goes up, goes out, and then comes back in again, and I think it's like 40 stories high. And I was working in a law firm that across the street from it. And then I was working in another law firm in, in Oklahoma where they were building a structure that was, that was to go up behind a, a, a historic building. It was to go up 10 stories to be cantilevered out over it and then go up another 30 stories. And the one thing I watched is that they spent much more time with, these, with the building the foundation of this than they did the superstructure. The one in Tulsa that was going to be lean out over another building, they went four stories deep in the ground. And the bottom two stories were just a block of concrete into which they sunk steel girders. And those girders came up at an angle because they were going to tie that building to it because the top 30 stories were going to lean out over another building. And believe me, out there they get some high winds. And I began to talk to the senior partner who was been there his whole life and said, you know, why do they do that? He says, because they understand they're spending more time on that because the quality of work that they do on that foundation will determine what they can build on top of it. Is that right? That's right, Bruce. And yet, we, we, but you don't see results. All you walk past it, they've got the woodwork up, and all you can hear is noise going on down there, but you don't see anything. So it looks like nothing's happening. Unless you happen to go by, as I did one day, and the doors were open because the truck was going down there, and I said, oh my goodness, that's when I started asking questions. So, it, so for months, four months, it looked like nothing was happening. And then when they started bringing the steel in, it just shot right up. But the reason it could go up quickly is because the, the architects and the engineers understood that laying that right foundation was critical to that building being able to survive. I understand that out in California, they have a very different building code, and those foundations have to be even stronger and more flexible because of the possibility of earthquakes and rattling. In fact, they put rollers between the floors so that the floors can move. I worked in one building in Boston that was 40, was 40 stories high, and the top floor in a windstorm, you could see the pictures moving. And that was designed that way so they would have some give to it. That's another sermon for another day. But the foundation, which you don't see anything... And see, God's more concerned with the foundation in your life, the part that nobody else sees, the part that's in here. God's far more concerned with building the... which is called your character. He's far more concerned with building the right foundation inside when, when nobody else can see the results. So very often people sense a, a, a purpose in their life that God's given them and they want to rush right out and do it and accomplish it. And they don't realize they've not allowed God the time to form inside of them the character. Ed Cole used to have this expression, if I get it right. He said, you know, the, 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 the talent takes to get you where you are, but it takes character to sustain it, to keep you there. And it's the internal work. But in our walk with God, in our life, in our service of God, in our walk in the kingdom of God, there's a foundation that must be laid. There's only one foundation 
that's important. There's only one foundation, and if you're building your life on the wrong foundation, it ultimately will not stand. So the foundation determines the strength, the size, the quality of what can be built on it. And the foundation in our life is what are you relying on. Anita spoke about that when she spoke. When we, we just had to go through a process of having our insurance renewed here, through the building. And so one of the things that, that we had to do was to have it revalued in terms of re- a replacement costs. But when they come through all of that, then they, take, they subtract from it the foundation. Why? Because in a fire, the foundation is the only thing that lasts. There was a famous restaurant not far from here that had a massive fire a few years ago, and everything was gone except the chimney and the foundation. Because the foundation is the one thing that will stand when everything else is destroyed. The foundation. So the question is, what is the foundation of your life right now? Not what do you think it is, what is it? What is the foundation on which you are building your life? What is the foundation on which this church is being built? Jesus says that, that I will build my church, and he says what the foundation is. And on that, I will build my, chur- I will build my church. Now, there, people can build their own church, and I'm not just talking about the building. They can attract their own crowd, and they can have quite a following and quite a ministry, but the qu- is it his church? Is it his church? Because then he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church, because I've built it on the right foundation. So what is the foundation? What is the foundation of your life? Well, let's go to, let's, we're looking at the right, let's go to Exodus chapter 20. Now, this is a wonderful story. Because this is a story of the children of Israel, God's people. We talked to them a little bit about that last week. God's people that He has brought, chosen for Himself, formed His own nation. They end up in Egypt so that, because there's a famine coming, and God's providing for them in Egypt, and then they overstay their need to be there, and they end up in bondage. They end up as servants to Pharaoh. And then they cry out to God for deliverance, and God has already prepared. He's been... 40 years in the prep, 80 years in the preparation of their deliverer, Moses. And Moses, since Moses comes and God supernaturally, by 10 incredibly miraculous miracles, delivers them out of Pharaoh's grasp, opens the Red Sea, they walk through that on dry land, then they turn and see the mightiest army in the face of this earth destroyed before their eyes, and God did all of that. They get out there three days, their canteens dry up, they cry out to God, and God provides, takes water that's bitter and turns it into sweet, and then leads them down into the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula to the base of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and then once they're all settled in there, God calls Moses up to the mountain, and he says, in three days I want you to sanctify the people, this is in chapter 19, and then I want you to bring them out to come to the base of the mountain, and he gives them instructions about what to do and not do, and he says, because I'm going to come down and meet with my people. So what we're about to read is God coming down to speak to his people and tell them what they need to know. Because what God wants to do is to bring them out of, He's brought them out of bondage, out of Egypt. But His goal isn't to just get them out of bondage. His goal is to take them into a land that He has prepared for them, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of tremendous prosperity and tremendous blessings and peace once they've accomplished what they're supposed to do. And so God's main goal is to get them from just being delivered out of Egypt over into this place of wonderful blessing. To do that, he's got to take them through this wilderness. And I think I mentioned to you last week, there's a shortcut. There's a roadway, there's a path that, that would have taken only a couple of weeks to go. But God tells Moses, he says, I know my people. Because on the way there, they're going to see some enemies. They're going to see the Philistines. They're going to see some Canaanites. And if they see opposition, I know my people, they're going to run back to Egypt. So I've got to take them by a longer route. I've got to take them by a route that's going to take them a year. Do you realize that there's some things God wants to do in your life that he could do much more quickly if you just learn to trust him better? and not react to what's going on around you? I don't know about you, but it's comforting to me to know that God knows me so well, He knows how to get me where He wants to get me because He knows me. And so part of this process of getting them from the 
land where they're in bondage and in sin, bondage to Pharaoh, to the land that God wants to bless them in, is God has to begin to reveal some things to them. God has to show them some things in a way that will impress them so that they will not turn back when the enemy comes to distract them and to try to destroy them. That's the context of this story. So now God has, Moses has assembled them around the base of the mountain and God comes down with fire and lightning and the ground is shaking and God calls Moses up and gives them some more instructions. They make sure they don't come up on the mountain because if they do, they're going to die. And then God calls Moses up and he begins to speak to them. So these are the, this is the first most important thing God wants them to know in order to walk in relationship with Him, in order for Him to be able to get them to this place of blessing and promise that He wants to get them because human beings are not such, so constituted that just because God says, I have this for you, we say, oh, fine, let me go do that. He's got to deal with our weaknesses. He's got to deal with our stubbornness. He's got to deal with our pride. He's got to deal with all those things that are in us because of sin, that are in us because of disobedience, that are in us because of, He knows how to deal with those things. And we're going to see clearly that in a minute. So God comes down, and this is the very first thing that God says. The very first thing that God's saying to them in this instructions. We're just going to look at the first three verses. And God spoke all these words saying, and of course this is the Ten Commandments. We're only going to look at the beginning. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, if you're not careful and you read through that too quickly, we say, yeah, of course. We're going to break that down a little bit because that is perhaps the most profound thing in the Bible. This is perhaps the most profound thing, the most important thing in the Bible. Go back to verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, verse 2, I am... The Lord, your God. Now, it's a little harder in English to understand the power of what he's saying there. This is the foundation of everything else God is going to say to them and do with them. I am the Lord. Notice he doesn't say, I am a Lord. I am the Lord. Now the Hebrew word for Lord there is Yahweh. The English version of that or the Latin word is Jehovah. It is the word that when God speaks to Moses and Moses says, well, you're sending me back. Who shall I say is sending me? And he says, I am. This word has a number of aspects to its meaning, but the foundation of this name means the self-existent one. It's very important for what we're talking about here. Because what God starts out by saying is, the one who's speaking to you, the one who is speaking to you, owes his existence to no one. I don't look to somebody else to get my name, my existence, my power, my right, my authority. It, everything comes from, it starts with me. A scientific name for this is, I am the Big Bang. <laughs> I am it. That's why when Moses says, well, who shall I say I am? Who said, sent me? Just say, I am. Because to put anything else after that limits it. I just am. I am the self-existent one. I owe my existence, my life, I owe myself to no one. I have just always been, everything comes from me. We're talking about foundation now. So the beginning thing God says is, I am the foundation of everything. I am the foundation. I am the Lord, your. Now I don't remember a whole lot about my high school grammar and my elementary grammar, but I remember this one, your is a possessive pronoun. It means that belongs to somebody. The, person, the other side of it is mine. These are my glasses. They won't do you any good. <laughs> These, that means they belong. We all understand. These are my glasses. They belong to me. 
The other side of that is God is saying, I am your God. What he's saying is, I am the self-existent one that belongs to you. Elsewhere he says, and you are my people. That means you belong to me. I am the Lord your God. The word God there is Elohim. Elohim is a generic general term for a God of any kind. A God in the sense of your source, a God in the sense of the one you look to for your security, your provision. Now keep in mind why this is so important to this people, but of course to us also. They've just spent 430 years living in a nation that is filled with gods and idols. They had thousands of gods that they worshipped. And they had little idols that they made to some. Some of them were higher in nature, higher in priority than the others. And they would have in their home little statues that they would worship representing that statue represented a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the harvest, a god of fertility, a god of whatever their need was, they formed a god to, 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 that they saw as the source of that need. This is why elsewhere God has them declare Israel again, I am the Lord, I am one. God's not many different gods. He is just one God. So the term God there is a generic term and they have come from a nation that is filled with different kinds of gods and He's sending them into a land that right now is occupied by people that also worship thousands of gods. So when they get into that land, we're going to see God instructs them when you're there. The reason God, you ever wonder why He says, I want you to utterly destroy them. I used to trouble me when I was first saved. I didn't like the Old Testament. Because it seemed that there was a different God in the Old Testament than in the New Testament. So I didn't like to read it because it made me uncomfortable. I liked the God of the New Testament that he had, you know, a, a little lamb around his shoulder, you know, and he was healing people and he was forgiving people. This God that says, I want you to go in there and I want you to utterly destroy all of them. I want you to make no covenants with any of them. Why? Because that land was so steeped in idolatry. And, and, and the spirit that was behind idolatry, that God knew His people, that if He tried to live with them, they would eventually intermarry and they would eventually bring those gods into their house. In fact, they did. Say, so, well, that's a nice old story. No, it applies today. Because we live in a world of gods also. They don't come in little statues unless you've got them on your dashboard. But they come in all kinds of things that we worship, and we'll talk about that. All kinds of gods that we put our trust in other than, I am the Lord your God. And the danger is the church becomes so comfortable with relying on these other things that the world provides that we begin to bring them into our home and into our lives and more importantly into our heart. And we begin to rely on the same things that the world relies on for our identity, our protection, and our provision. And this is why God has certain rules for us to follow to keep us sanctified, not so we don't have fun, to keep us so that the world doesn't get into our heart. He's jealous for our heart. I am the Lord, your God. I am Elohim, I am the God, and I'm the one that belongs to you. I'm yours and you're mine. And then He reminds them what He's done for them. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage. So God would say to us today, because you and I didn't come from Egypt, at least I don't think you did, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the bondage of sin. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the bondage of sin that was going to take you to an eternity in hell. I am the Lord of God. I am the Lord God who brought you out of drugs. I am the Lord God who brought you out of fear. I am the Lord God who found you and delivered you and cleansed you, cleaned you up and put you in this place. I am the Lord God who put your marriage back together. I am the Lord your God. I'm the one that did that. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Verse 3. And here's, as a result of this, because of who I am and what I've done for you, you shall have no other gods before me. 
And see, it's easy to sit there and say, well, I don't. I come to church, I read my Bible, I, give tith- I pay tithes, I, I, I do what I'm supposed to do. I don't have any other gods before me. But we need to begin to look in our hearts because what a God is is who you rely on, who you trust in. Sudden disaster happens. Suddenly, suddenly your world's turned upside down. What's your first instinct to do? Where do you turn first? Because that's most likely where your trust is. You shall have no other gods before me. What is a god in our life? What does a god perform? They're the source of our provision. That's why they worshipped the gods of fertility. They worshipped the gods of harvest because they were hoping, they were trusting that if I worship whatever that god is, that god's going to make sure we have a good harvest this year. I'm going to worship the god of fertility because we can't have children. And if I have this image of this god of fertility, that means that somehow that god's going to help us to have children. So he was looking to man-made gods to provide a need in my life and putting my trust and confidence in that God and whatever you put your trust and confidence in you begin to open your heart up to and allow in your heart. Now it's interesting because in going through this just kind of reviewing this this morning what I suddenly realized is all the rest of these commandments are instructions so that we don't do that. Because Ultimately, what this is about, when we have another God other than God as the God in our life, we have chosen really to be our own God, to make our own way. So as you go on down, he talks about a graven image. A graven image is forming something that I'm going to begin to worship in, not that image itself, but what's behind that image, what that image represents. But then when he goes down and says, you shall not steal, what's stealing? It's taking something that I want for myself because I don't trust God's going to provide it for me. When I lie, what is that? Because I don't trust that if I tell the truth, God's going to somehow break me out of this situation. So I've got I've to take the issue into my hands and restructure the truth so that I can protect myself. Coveting. It's obviously that. Covet another man's wife, covet somebody's car. I want, I want that myself. And it, coveting is something with the heart. All of these are something in the heart. It's giving our hearts over to something else to be our source, and I'm in control of that. That's the issue here. This is not just outward things. This is a heart issue. This is a foundation issue. This is the foundation of our life issue. And we need to be willing to look at these things. And what he's reminding them is, I'm the one that delivered you out of bondage. Pharaoh didn't deliver you. You didn't deliver yourself. And because of these things, you shall have no other God before me. In other words, God is saying, and remember, he's, he's, he's talking, God's speaking in his voice to Moses and the people from this mountain. And God is saying, I demand that I am before any other God in your life. I demand that. So that's pretty pushy of him. He's God. The end of Isaiah, I think it's 60, it says that the fear of the Lord means that we tremble at His word. I don't mean we run away from God, because what happened is the children of Israel became afraid of God and ran away from Him. Moses drew closer to him. He must be before any other God. Before in time, and this is the things we're going to begin to talk about, before in importance in your life, or in any capacity. Everything else in God's divine order is based on this foundation. Because He has an order. He has an order for your family. He has an order for your finances. He has an order for everything in your life. And see, we can have this attitude, well, that's kind of pushy for God to think He's got the right to come in and order my life. Remember, he go back to the first verse. I am the Lord, your God. And see, it, it, it bucks up against our flesh. And that's what needs to be challenged. 
Because either God's supreme in my life, or I think I am. And if you think you are, then you're deceived because it's the devil that is. Because neither you, you and I are not capable of being gods. So if we think we're our self-made man, if we think I'm in control of my life, then you're deceived because that tells you that really Satan's the one that's in control of your life. I'm not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not. I'm talking about what God's able to do in your life. God's blessings in your life. God's prospering your life. And I'm not talking about money because there's prosperity that's far beyond money. It's having a happy marriage. It's having children that call you blessed and rise up and call you blessed. It's having health in your body. It's having joy in your life. There are blessings that are far beyond money, and the money will come in, but this, if that's what you think is the blessing, then that's your God. If money is the source of your happiness, that's your God. If your job and your, your accomplishments in your job are your source of your happiness and fulfillment, then that's a God in your life. And we'll look at some of those things. But God has an order for your family. God has an order for your, own to- for your own life. He has an order for your finances. And the foundation of it all has to be He has to be first. He has to be number one in priority in time, priority in, an, in, in the investment of your heart. The rest of these commandments deal with violations of the first, our own effort to be our own God. Now let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. And I want to show you why. Now, Exodus is where God... Oh, by the way, while while you're going there, let me just tell you how this story plays out. Because, again, this is a good example of what we're talking about. God tells Moses, I want to get them over to this land. Remember, He wants to get them there to bless them. He wants to get them there to prosper them so that they can have a place that flows with milk and honey, that, that, that He can just fill them with what He wants to do for them. We saw last week, I think it was, when Psalm 81, sometime recently, we saw Psalm 81, where God says, if you just, open, if you just listened to me and done what I said, talking to Israel, you could have opened your mouth wide and I would have filled it. I didn't want to just give you manna from heaven. I wanted to satisfy you with the finest of wheat and the finest of honey, but I couldn't do that because you wouldn't trust me. So God wants to bless us and take care of us. He's a good, generous God. We've talked about that before. So God, but God, this is it. God knows how to get us there. God, let me say it God knows how to get you there. If we'll do it His way. So He comes down on the mountain to appear before them in a limited form. God's never appeared before anybody in this full form. And this form he chooses is a form of thunder and lightning and the ground shake. It's to share with them a little bit of his awesome power to back up who he said he is. And he called them to come out, it says, so that they would see him, fear him, and obey him. Because God knew that they needed to have a reverence for him before they would obey him. And what do they do? They come out to the bottom of the mountain and they hear the rumblings and they see the fire and they say to Moses, this is too much for us. And this, is, this is their answer for what they need. Now listen carefully. God has said, I know how to get you to the place of blessing. And they're saying, no, 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 no. We can't handle that. That's too much for us. We know what we need. So Moses, you go listen to him and then you come tell us because we're going to be back in our tents watching the football game. You come tell us what we need, and then we'll go do it. See, they had confidence in their own selves that they would do, that they would obey God. They had confidence in themselves. They had, oh, this is good. They had confidence in their own intentions. They had confidence in their own intentions. We've seen him now. If we just hear the words... Moses from you, that will obey him. And I believe with all my heart they were sincere, but they were wrong. Because the very thing they did, the first thing they do, is they start out disobeying him. See, God knows what we need to get us there. But they wouldn't trust him, they trusted themselves. And the result is, the the short story is that they never made it. That generation never made it into the place God had prepared for them. 
He had to keep them wandering around another 39 years in the wilderness until that generation died off and the next generation born in the wilderness, that generation he now brings in. Now, Deuteronomy, we're now 39 years down the road. That generation, first generation has died off. The generation that was born in the wilderness is now ready to enter the promised land. They're right on the doorway and now God begins to speak through Moses going back over, rehearsing what they've just come through. So God's method often is He'll teach you something, then later on He'll take you on a review of what you, just, of what you learned. So this is going back over why He's done what He's done with them. And we're going to go down through most of this chapter. Verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Every commandment I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember the Lord your God who led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Look what He led you to do. To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you and allowed you to go to, to hunger. Now look at what that means. He fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that He might make you to know something. Now stop there. So God is telling them this is why, because in, in the story I'm sure most of you remember is that they got out of the wilderness and they're complaining they've run out of their food and God says to Moses, here's what you're going to do. They're going to get up every morning and they're going to come out and when the dew has fallen on the ground, what they're going to see is what's fallen with them is a substance that they can now take and they can knead it into dough and they can bake bread. And they went out and looked at it and they said, what is this stuff? Which is literally what manna means in Hebrew. What is this? So God gave them something they didn't know. Something they didn't have experience with. And his, his instructions were, <clears throat> you're to go out every morning and to gather, listen carefully, just that day's bread. If you try to collect two days worth, the second day's going to rot. The exception is, when you do it on the sixth day, that day you can take two days because he's also prescribed a Sabbath day of rest where they can't go out and collect anything. So that does two things. It allows them to have bread on the Sabbath, but it shows them that God could have made that bread extend for two days if he wanted to. The fact that it rotted is because God said, I've only told you to collect one day's worth. And of course, what do they do the first, time, the first day? What do they do? They go out and collect as much as they can. <laughs> They're still not trusting. And it rots. Now he's explaining to them, this is why I did that. So when God says, I'm hungering them, he's not starving them, he's disciplining them. Because he's training them in something that is far more important than how much bread they get to eat. And here's the reason. So I humbled you, verse 3, and allowed you to be hungry, and I fed you with manna which you did not know, that's what that means, nor did your fathers know, that He, God, might make you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He said, I'm just teaching you that you need to live on my word more than you live on the bread you can collect. God's saying, I am your source. I want you to learn to trust my word that when I tell you I will provide for you, I will provide for you. Even in a wilderness where there's no Shaw's, there's no Stop and Shop, <clears throat> there's no 7-Eleven, I will provide for you no matter where you are because I want you to learn to trust my word more than you trust that bread you collect. I'm teaching you something so that when you get into that land, I can bless you. Goes on to say, <clears throat> verse 4, Your garments didn't wear out on you, nor would you, your feet swell these 40... They're walking in the most hostile place they could walk in. Horrible heat in the middle of the daytime. Rock, it's all rock. It's, it's, the, it's a source of all rocks. Rocks, heat. In the nighttime, it's cold, it's freezing. And God says, for 40 years... Your clothes didn't wear out. Your shoes didn't wear out. Your garments didn't get holes in them. God provided food, clothing for them, supernaturally, every day, for 40 years. Verse 5, 
You should know in your heart that as a man chastens or trains, that word means his son, so the Lord God trains or chastens you. Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear the Lord. Here, this is what For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs that flow out of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of oil, olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land where stones are iron out of those hills and you can dig copper. Uh, <clears throat> when you have eaten and are full, this is why, so that when you have eaten and are full, then you will bless the Lord your God for the good land which He has given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments. Oh, let's stop there a second. He's saying the key to remembering God is to keep His commandments. If you start forgetting His commandments, you'll start forgetting Him. Not just who He is, but who He really is to you. So how we keep the commandments is a reflection on how we see God. So I thought we'd been redeemed from the commandments. I thought we're not under the law, but we're under grace. No, Jesus said, I've come not to throw the law out, but to fulfill it, to enable you to fulfill it and cover you when you slip and fail. So the law is not thrown out. Verse 11, 12, lest when you've eaten and are full and have beautiful houses and are dwell in them, when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied. Doesn't that sound good? I mean, God's not trying to skimp on them. He wants to bless them. He says, but here's the point. When I bless you, I'm training you so that when I bless you, you won't forget me. Um, verse 14. And when your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, when you, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of a flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers didn't know, that he might humble you and might test you to do good to you. And then you say in your heart, but my power and my might of my hand has gained me this wealth. Instead, you shall remember your Lord, your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may establish His covenant with you, which He swore to your fathers to this day. God wanted to establish with them from the very beginning who He was to them, so that He could bless them, prosper them, take care of them. Because He said, if you don't have this foundation that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. If you don't see me as the source of everything in your life, then when those blessings begin to come, they're going to pull your heart away from me. God wants to bless you, take care of you, pour His blessings in you and through you. But when He's not the foundation of our life, He knows those blessings will eventually pull you away from Him, and He's a jealous God. He loves you so much, He doesn't want anything that will take you away from Him. He sent His Son to die to save you out of Satan's grasp because Satan was going to take you away from Him. He was willing to send His, his own Son to shed His blood to rescue you from the one who would take you away from Him. He, everything else He does in your life is to keep you from, to help you to not pull away from Him. Hebrews chapter 12 relates back to this. Hebrews 12 is, I'm not going to go into the whole background of Hebrews, but it's, it's God correcting the Jewish believers because under persecution they'd been spread to another part of the, country, of the world and they were starting to compromise and go back under the law by being circumcised and keeping some of the practices of the law. And so this whole book is, is basically a correction. In chapter 12, once you start in verse 5, uh, which is a recitation of Proverbs 3, part of Proverbs 3, talks about because God is a loving Father, He will correct us. And having gone down through all of that, we're going to pick up in verse 25. See therefore that you do not refuse Him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused Him who spoke on earth, what He's talking about is what we just looked at. He's referring now that when He came down on that mountain to Israel and tried to teach them, and to try to tell them what they had to base their life on. They didn't listen to him. That's what he's referring to here. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, 
Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from Him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth. That's what we just looked at. But now is promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Not where He lives, but that spiritual atmosphere around this earth. Now this once more indicates the removal of those things. Look at it carefully. The removal of those things which are being shaken. Remember we started out with that simple story Jesus told about the two men that build their houses. One house could be shaken and destroyed, the other house could not be shaken and destroyed, and the difference is what the houses were built on, what the foundation of their lives were built on, and that's exactly what the Spirit of God is talking about here. Yet once more indicates the removal of those things which can be shaken, verse 27, as of things which are made. Things that are made are made by our hands. That the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace, or hold on to grace, by which we may serve a God acceptably with reverential fe- and reverence and godly fear. What he's saying is there's going to come a time when everything that this world, that man has made, the systems of this world, the foundations of this world, and I don't mean literally, although eventually that too, everything that man has learned to trust, his economy and everything, is going to be shaken. And the only things that will remain are the things that are of God. And so the question is, what's the foundation of my life? If I want to be standing strong in the midst of those trials, I have to have God first as the foundation in every area of my life. I have to have God first as the foundation in every area of my life. We may or may not get into this issue when we talk about finances, but I'll give you a little clue. The book of Revelations, it talks about when the Antichrist has taken over. And it says that be careful that you don't receive the mark of the beast on your forehead or on your, fore- on your hand because it's, gonna, it's necessary to use to buy and sell. I mean, uh, 50 years ago, you couldn't, what can that mean? Nowadays, you can see exactly what it means. You can see what we're headed towards a system whereby it says, look, credit, everything's with credit card. I mean, you get in other parts of the world, it's all credit. It's, it, there's no cash. And the only thing secure is going to be credit cards, and then, well, you could lose a credit card, but they can now implant chips in animals, they can implant chips in, they can implant a chip in your hand or your forehead that's used to scan, and it says that's necessary to buy and sell, because what we're going to look at is the world's economy system is based on the functioning of buying and selling. I need what you have, so I've got to provide something that you want, that I have, that I can have what you want. So it's based on what can I get. And of course, we know that when sales are out there, ladies, you get excited because you get a bargain. So you get more than you paid for. So the very essence, and I didn't plan to get into this this morning, the very essence of buying and selling is you want the best deal you can get. So it's selfish-oriented. I want to get a better deal than you get. God's kingdom isn't based on buying and selling, it's based on sowing and reaping. Because in buying and selling, you're in control, or the, 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 the one you're buying from is in control. In God's kingdom, God provides for us on the basis of our sowing and reaping. God is our source, whether you have a job or not. God is our source whether the, whether the stock market draw, drops 500 points in a day or not. God is our source no matter what happens because nothing can shake God and His economy. So the question we're going to look at is what are you building your finances on? Which kingdom are you operating in in your finances? I'm not saying it's wrong to use credit cards. I'm not saying it's wrong to buy and sell. But what's your trust in? Are you developing your faith that what you sow, God will reap back to you? Are you developing your faith that God is your source? Because we better begin to do that now if you haven't. Because I don't know when this is going to happen. We may not be here. But I, I want to be prepared. And I have a responsibility to prepare you. So that's just a preview for when we talk about finances. But it applies to every area of your life. Am I trusting in God? Let's go now quickly. We'll end here. Let's go to... Um, to Matthew 22. 
verse 34. Jesus has just said some things to them about the Scriptures and who He is. But when the Pharisees heard that He'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, I don't know why they keep picking on lawyers, (laughs) asked them a question, testing Him, testing Him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now let's stop there a second. I learned something this morning as I was researching this. This is called, this was called by the Jews the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. Because it, it, it's a re- reference to what they did, which is really in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, where they, they would say, they would, uh, it, which Deuteronomy 6 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And they were to recite that every morning when they got up. And some authorities I looked at said they were to recite that twice a day. Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. So the emphasis is hear. The Lord your God is one. He's not a thousand different gods. He is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all... So Jesus is quoting something that they knew. He's not teaching them a new principle. He's quoting something that they were supposed to have been saying twice a day for their whole life. But he goes on, and this is why we want to look at that. You shall love the Lord your God, verse, verse 37, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He adds mind to it. Why? Because to the Hebrews, the heart was the center of your being. But to the Greeks... The mind was the center of your being. So Jesus is saying with all of you, whether it's your heart or your mind or your soul, you are to love the Lord your God with all of that. And then he goes on to say, this is the first, the first, the first, the first primary foundational commandment that you shall love the Lord your God. So all we've been looking at this morning comes down to and is summed up not so much by something you do with your outward actions, but it's your heart. It's an issue of the heart. Everything we're going to talk about in terms of priority and first things first have not so much to do with what you do, it's your heart. Because you can do the right things with the wrong heart, but if you've got the right heart, you'll do the right things. For years I would do things for Anita to please her so she'd be happy so that I could be happy. Not that she's difficult to live with, but you want, I want her happy. I want her smiling in the morning. So I'd say, what do I have to do so she smiles? That's selfish. Because my real goal is what do I get out of this? And God began to deal with that and show me how selfish I was. And I'm thinking, I thought I was doing a good job. And the Lord says, no, the root of, all, the root of this isn't her, it's you. So we can do things for God that are selfish in nature. I want approval. I want to be promoted. And it's the heart that matters to God. This is the first, the foundational commandment. All the things... Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, and we've got to close up here. Verse 39. And the second is like under this. This is what we've been talking about up until now. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at verse 40. On these two commandments, on these two commandments, on these two commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, it all hangs. All the law and all the prophets. Everything with God. All the other commandments all His instructions, all things the Spirit leads us to do, everything God does with us hangs on those two foundational commandments. And the first is, because you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't first love God. But what Jesus did is He took it from the commandment of Exodus 20 to an issue of the heart. An issue of the heart. I came to the end of this study and I was going back over things yesterday and the thought occurred to me, all right, this is a great study. Where do we go from here? 
How do I apply this in my life? How do we apply it in our lives? Well, that's what we're going to begin to talk about next time. It comes down to priorities. What are your priorities? What are the most important things in your life, in your finances, in your family, in your job? What are the, and we're going to learn to identify those. And I'll tell you a clue as we begin to get into them. The one who knows the answer to that, the one you can trust the least to know the answer to that is you. You are the worst judge of your priorities. And I'll tell you next week who the best judges are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you love us as a father. Because you love us as a father, you don't leave us where we are. Because you love us as a father, you want to take us and bring us to a place, as you did the children of Israel long ago, you want to bring us to a place of blessing, of peace, and of joy. Even in the midst of a world that's gone crazy, you want your people, you want your body here on the earth to be strong, to be at peace, to be overcomers, to be victorious. And Lord, your foundation for that is you. In this week that lies in front of us, Father, I'm asking you to talk to each one of us, even right now maybe, Talk to us about the priorities in our life. Are, is God my source in everything in my life? Is He the one I turn to? Does He have that first place in my heart that's above everything else? And Father, I pray that in this week, between now and then, that you begin to open the eyes of all of our understandings, including me, that we would truly see who you are that has brought us out of the land of bondage that you are the Lord and you are our God and we shall have no other gods before you. Father, wherever we're off in that, we trust you to show us and to help us to make that correction and we thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.